FM on Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm your co-host Ash Sarka at IOCSA on Twitter and I'm here with Aaron Bastani at Aaron Bastani. Today we're joined by two very special guests to try and make sense of the current climate of political repression and state violence in Turkey. So thanks for joining us guys. Um, first up we're joined by Aisha Zarakol, lecturer in international relations at the University of Cambridge and author of After Defeat, How the East Learned to Live with the West. And we're also joined by Cameron Matin, Senior Lecturer in International Relations at the University of Sussex and author of Recasting Iranian Modernity, International Relations and Social Change. So academic big dogs, very busy guys. We're very lucky to have them. Um, Before we get cracking, I would like to say thank you to Kerem Nissanjolu, who's been an invaluable part of putting today's show together. And if you're interested, listeners can check out his Twitter at Kerem Brule for his unerringly excellent insights into international politics and his unremittingly wrong opinions about football. So I'm going to keep my introductory remarks brief because I'm as keen to learn from our guests as I imagine our listeners are. Um, So I'll start by saying why this subject and why now? Um, After last week's bombing in Istanbul, which killed 11 and injured 14, Turkey has seen an intense escalation of attacks on civil liberties, with academics and journalists critical of the government's stance on Kurdish political autonomy facing arrest, detention and even threats of violence. A A statement signed by... 1,028 academics entitled We Will Not Be a Party to These Crimes was denounced by the AKP as terrorist propaganda, with signatories, names and places of work being made public and many are facing disciplinary processes at their institutions and even death threats. Um, Over 30 have been arrested and they could be facing charges of propagandising for a terrorist organisation and overtly insulting the Turkish nation. If convicted, they could face anywhere between one and five years in prison. And as we will be discussing in greater depth um, over the course of the show, this is happening against a backdrop of aggressive military mobilisation in the southeast, with government forces accused of targeting the civilian Kurdish population and also medical responders. So I'm going to hand over to our guests and just ask quite simply, how did we get here? Um, What has been going on since maybe if we take the Gezi protests as our starting point and now? Thank you. It's a great pleasure to be here. Um, so, well, um, it's a mixed pleasure because <laughs> the reason for being here is uh, quite uh, distressing, actually, both the um, the difficulties academics in Turkey are facing and also what's happening in the southeast. Um, I, if we're going to start with Gezi protests, I'd like to take a step back and um, just contextualize the Gezi protests within uh, the per- Turkish political scene. Uh, as l- listeners may know, um, AKP came to power with promises of uh, liberalizing the, the regime. Um, before 2001, Turkish political system can best be described as electoral democracy under military bu- bureaucratic tutelage and uh, with several communities uh, quite disenfranchised uh, from the, uh, the regime. Islamists, um, uh, leftists, and Kurds being primary examples. Uh, And uh, because AKP seemed to be promising um, and in in the beginning delivering on the promises of liberalizing the regime, for the first uh, two terms, they had great international support and to some extent uh, domestic support from liberals and other disenfranchised groups, including... um, um, large segments of Kurdish community. 
Um, but since the third term, uh, since the 2010 elections, um, um, Erdogan, who was the prime minister at the time, now president, uh, started displaying uh, um, increasingly authoritarian tendencies and using polarizing language. Um, some argue that those tendencies were present s since the beginning. Um, we'll leave that aside. And as a result, in 2013, he faced very serious protests in all uh, except one uh, city in Turkey. Um, those protests lasted, uh, what we call Gezi protests now, lasted almost a month, uh, ended up with um, several people dying. Um, and since then, uh, the political fortunes of uh, Erdogan uh, are, uh, I mean, basically the wind has turned internationally and domestically. Uh, so what's happening now has to be put in the context uh, of of that and his uh, desire to uh, to basically write his fortunes uh, uh, in the domestic and international scene. Yes, uh, I, I agree with Aisha. I think the uh, the Gezi protest was like the 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 breaking point in many ways for for the AKP project because by then, I think the AKP had managed to antagonize the the left, the traditional left in Turkey, by pursuing a very kind of uh, unbridled neoliberal uh, neoliberalization of, of of Turkish economy. The um, the religious kind of tendency of the of the party to um, uh, change the nature of the of the state and public spaces in in, in Turkey antagonized the secular nationalists, um, especially the Kemalists, and and the um, the rift with Gulen movement, which I think is also relevant and in, important at some point, because Gulen movement is also is an Islamist movement, and initially they had a kind of un, unwritten pact with the AKP in in order to kind of uh, get rid of the influence of of the of the army over the or the politics and. The the Gulen movement helped uh, AKP a lot because they had uh, quite strong. Uh, they were very strong in, in, in judiciary and police institutions within the Turkish system. But over 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 foreign policy, especially, they, there was a there was a rift, and also naturally AKP wanted to kind of uh, totalize the power. And therefore, after the rift with the Gulen movement, there was also a, a big section of the AKP support kind of went away from the beginning. And the Kurds, obviously, from um, um, the, the initially, they were attracted, as Aisha said, to the AKP project because of the liberalization, because of the talk of the uh, resolution of the Kurdish question. But the subsequent events showed that actually AKP probably from the beginning had a very instrumentalist approach to the Kurdish question in the sense that they needed the Kurdish vote, the Kurdish conservative votes, in order to win the elections against the kind of entrenched Kemalist and secular secular opposition. But once that vote wasn't forthcoming, and that is really... Um, kind of became evident after the Kobani siege and that brings us to Syria which we have to discuss I think in, in, in more length later on. Then that we saw that AKP had no interest in pursuing the, the, the peace process because from the beginning it was supposed to be an electoral kind of strategy. So that's um, um, the other aspects of the current context and from the beginning from the especially Gazi protests you have the first more systematic clampdown on the media uh, and journalists 
And from then until now, we have just seen the, the, the growth of this tendency and added to that is now the the attack on the last, actually, um, if you like, bastion of critique within within Turkish political scene, which would, academia was generally kind of uh, untouched usually um, during this period by the AKP. But now they have tried to use this opportunity in, in some ways to actually restructure the very system of higher education and kind of bring it under the state uh, influence more directly. Uh, yes, I, I, I just adding to what Cameron said. I want to clarify the timeline. The 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 protests happened the summer of 2013, and at that point, uh, AKP basically broke up with the liberal elements in the party. Then the rift with the Gülenists, which uh, is an Islamist movement, as Cameron said, happened um, the the winter of 2013 to 14. And after that, uh, we had the, the presidential elections. Uh, and in the meantime, the peace process with the Kurds was supposedly ongoing and was being used as a bargaining chip uh, uh, or as leverage as the AKP. Um, critics were uh, accused of uh, not wanting peace. Uh, and uh, and then basically the uh, breakup with the Kurds happened uh, the next winter over the siege of Kobani and uh, especially bringing us to the elections of last summer. Uh, a major player in that uh, election, um, the, the election, June elections where AKP lost the majority for the first time was uh, HDP, which is an umbrella party of, um, uh, well, its basic core is the Kurdish uh, political movement, but also it brings together very small Uh, leftist organizations and um, the reason AKP lost uh, the majority in that election was that for the very first time HDP managed to attract votes for from the West and passed the 10% threshold uh, which uh, is required basically in you know the Turkish electoral system for any party to uh, send uh, MPs to the parliament and after that we have the breakdown of the peace process uh, the open breakdown of the peace process. Yeah, yes, indeed. Uh, so for, for a British audience, for a non-Turkish audience, obviously they're familiar with Erdogan, maybe yeah. slightly less familiar with the AKP. Um, if we're looking at, obviously, big political personalities, you think of people like de Gaulle, you think of Thatcher, they've defined a sort of political era. Clearly Erdogan's defining a political era in Turkey right now. To what extent can the AKP and Erdogan be seen as distinct from one another. Let's say Erdogan wasn't around tomorrow. Would the AKP still be a really powerful political player? Has it got a powerful membership base? Or is it really actually quite dependent upon the sort of cult of personality which surrounds Erdogan himself? Yes, I mean... Um It has to be recognized that, that uh, as far as I understand the, the AKP politics, that it, it's not internally very homogeneous. But by all means, I think a, you know, Erdogan's um, circle dominates the party. But in terms of its, its longer pedigree, I think the AKP is a part of the wider Islamist movement in Turkey, which goes way back to the probably uh, institutionally maybe to 70s with the so-called national view movement uh, led by Najmadin Erbakan, who who was actually involved in the politics in Turkey in the 70s. And the interesting thing was the Arbakan's manifesto at the time was um, an attack on the particular kind of capitalism which existed in, in Turkey at the time. It was highly inefficient from his point of view. It was protected by the state. It was... Um, essentially a rent-seeking system in which the Kemalist uh, industrialists 
dominated the, the, the economy. And he was arguing for, even then, for what we consider now as a neoliberal kind of form of economy in which market, free market will decide everything. And so these Rizlamists. Pardon? These Rizlamists, 40 years yes, ago. Amazing. Yes, indeed. Uh-huh. And I think if you look at the con- uh, economic policies of AKP, you see actually that line is, is quite, quite powerful. But as, as a personality, obviously Erdogan had his, his um, star rising during his mayorship of Istanbul, if I'm not wrong. And at that time, AKP was uh, famed for its being kind of uncorrupted, kind of very um, engaged in social welfare system. And the lack of corruption at the time was very important for Turkish electorate because the, the system was historically kind of associated with, with, uh, with fraud at every level. So I think there is both institutional and historical background to the AKP's power, but also specifically to Erdogan's. But Aisha probably has more to say on that. Originally, what made AKP success possible was that it reached out and created a sort of an umbrella organization uh, similar to the Republican Party, perhaps in the in the U.S., bringing together various elements of the right, uh, the religious right, you know, the economic right, etc. Because uh, before Erdogan and before AKP, um, political Islamist parties at, at uh, their vote was limited. Um, the highest they got was 19%, uh, if memory serves me right. Whereas uh, AKP reached out um, because it was a coalition. But that coalition has broken down and now it's just, um, it's become a one-man party, even though technically he's not a member of the party as the president, he's supposed to be uh, impartial and not supposed to have (laughs) party affiliations. Um, I'm just aware of getting back to this thing about the timeline and just... um um, getting a sense of how did we get in the position that we are in terms of the arrest of academics and also the escalation of uh, military activities in the southeast. Um, from an outsider's perspective, one of the things that seemed really striking to me is that the way in which, in particular, the bombings in Diyarbakir, Surich, Ankara, and Istanbul have marked some distinct phases in terms of clampdowns and free speech, political organising, and escalation of military mobilisation. I was wondering if um, either of you could make sense of that in terms of uh, the AKP's consolidation of power, um, are the different state organisations of the judiciary, the military, working together towards the same aims or working against each other in some aspects? And um, what what are the possibilities for HDP political, um, political mobilisation against this backdrop of violence? So, yeah. OK, um, so... You've mentioned four bombings. Uh, I think the first three need to be kept uh, somewhat separate from the last one because they seem to be displaying a slightly different pattern. So we have uh, the Diyarbakir bombing two days before the June elections. Then we have the Suruç bombing about a month later uh, and then the Ankara bombing uh, about uh, two weeks before November elections. And in all of these, I mean... And then finally we have uh, the Istanbul bombing of uh, January 12th. Uh, All of these bombings have been associated with ISIS by various observers, but uh, the first three bombings uh, targeted uh, either HDP or Kurdish rallies or leftist uh, rallies. All of the uh, perpetrators were um, Turkish citizens and with uh, alleged links to ISIS. And um, in the last bombing, uh, it's a a Saudi 
national that came in through Syria and the targets were uh, uh, German tourists. I mentioned this in, in order to put the bombings in the context. Uh, originally, I mean, it seems to be either that if, if it's ISIS behind all of all four, uh, it, it hasn't been, uh, ISIS has not claimed any of these bombings officially. If it's indeed ISIS behind all four, uh, they've changed strategies. Or there's the possibility that the first three uh, were committed by one group and the last one by another group. And the first three bombings seem to, uh, again, as, as I said, uh, um, target the HDP base uh, and uh, uh, to provo- provoke a reaction from uh, those circles, which they indeed do, uh, did provoke after the Suraj bombing, PKK resumed its... Um, uh, activities against the you know agents of the Turkish state in the region, and we have the declarations of autonomy in various uh, uh, southeastern uh, uh, cities, uh, and also coming onto the scene of Yedegeh, uh, um, which is the uh, the youth organization that's you know uh, maintaining the barricades, uh, and uh, the the Turkish state is now you know uh, targeting via the curfews and. Uh, other um, um, measures in the in the region. So um, the um, yeah, and that brings us to the academic petition, uh, which uh, was criticizing uh, these practices uh, in the southeast uh, since the breakdown of the peace process as a result of these bombings, and that's what's pro- provoked the crackdown on academia. Yes, although I would I would say that even the forced bombing, if if we if we look at the, from the perspective of the, the Turkish involvement in Syria and the, their near obsession with the with the Kurdish gains in the Syrian Kurdistan, also known as the Rojava, then I think one could actually conjecture that even the forced one could be could be linked in the sense that this last one had had a much more direct Syrian. Um, aim in the sense that would give Turkey a pretext to intervene in in the only remaining area in which um, ISIS is present and has a link to the Turkish border because the uh, YPG uh, forces, i.e. the Syrian Kurds armed forces close to the PKK have been steadily advancing from from the east towards the west and Turkey has constantly said that this is the so-called Jarablus line is is the red line and they they don't allow any 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 YPG presence there so and there were reports actually I saw only yesterday that that they have deployed actual troops on the other side of the border which is you know um, presumably to to prevent uh, YPG to, to advance. I, I have no confirmation of that from any other sources, but from one uh, Kurdish Syrian um, news agency. But if that's true, then one could see that why this would be necessary in the sense that that towards uh, Turkish European partners and the West, this this would kind of um, you know justify the Turkish deployment. But then because of the Russian presence in Syria, I think any large scale uh, deployment of Turkey across the border would would. Complicate things, <coughs> complicate things extremely um, much, especially in insofar as it, in the U.S. is concerned as well. Um, but um, I think the, insofar as the Academic for Peace was specifically talking about the the uh, the operations of the Turkish army and the security forces in, in Kurdistan, it has obviously much direct relation to what happened, especially in the Kobani siege, where the the Turkey and Erdogan personally were. Um, 
you know, talking about the imminent fall of the Kobani and kind of um, preventing the help to reach and so on and so forth. And when they lost the Kurdish electorates there, then the the, the war kind of position within AKP got the upper hand and that's exactly what they did. Because by the attacking the Kurds, they were trying to attract the um, staunch nationalist votes from MHP, the National Movement Party, and from part even the um, Republican um, People's Party, the Jehapas in, in Turkey. But also at the same time, they intensified... Um, so the, the, their, their Islamic uh, discourse was supposed to attract the Islamic voters. The, the nationalist discourse against, especially the Kurds, was supposed to attract the nationalist vote. And these two kind of constantly, you know, reinforcing each other. And both of which were pursued through this dual kind of, if you like, pro- project. The, the really uh, strong iron hand against the Kurds and the uh, attack on the civil society and, 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 the, and the journalism and, uh, and, and the media and so on and so forth. And the the only place from which you could actually hear explicit criticism uh, in a way of the state in recent months was was the academia which and now now it's being attacked so it's it falls in place if you have this wider i think the background yes um two points do bear underlining one is as Cameron said because Erdogan uh, now controls all of uh, mainstream media uh the, there are very few places left of any kind of critical activity and uh, universities were one of them not all universities but some universities and the second thing I want to add is um, I um, there is a uh, there is a desire and to some extent we could say the PKK is playing into this desire there's a desire to associate um, the Kurdish uh, political movement with terrorism uh, in an attempt to um, Um, bring down the votes of HDP and if they fall uh, below 10% in the next elections and they could call um, um, elections again uh, if uh, then AKP would get uh, uh, AKP would get more than 400 seats in the next election and that would allow Erdogan to push through the constitutional changes that he desires Uh, he is the president now but he wants to become Uh, a president in a presidential system uh, and one that doesn't really have any checks and balances. Uh, So I think that's the end goal and that's why he's keeping up this uh, war. I mean, I'd like to um, push this point about uh, the role of of free speech in terms of government criticism and how that's got this um, international dimension or dimension that's closely tied to Syria. And I'm thinking here about the imprisonment of... um, Chandinder and the editorial staff of, I'm sorry, my pronunciation is absolutely atrocious. Um, Jumhuriyet. Thank you. Um, how, do, how do you say it? Jumhuriyet. Yeah. Okay. okay good, that's good um, both of our state school educations shining yeah, through here. Tell me about it. Um, so I'm thinking in particular of their imprisonment regarding um, their expose of weapon sales to. Um, Islamist forces in Syria um, and I think they're being charged with divulging state secrets which can carry a life sentence so I guess one of the things that um, I'm drawing on here is the paucity of a what is essentially a liberal response of what's going on in Turkey is bad because it's an attack on free speech um, without contextualising it within these very um, very 
a very immediate context where there are certain things which are being silenced, certain things which aren't, and a need to, in order to defend freedom of speech, a need to support Kurdish political autonomy, both within, both on the left in terms of this country and within the Turkish left itself. Is that something that's happening or is that something that people are reluctant to do? I think in terms of, um, insofar as the Western European governments are concerned, um, it is relevant to the sense that they are constantly facing, especially since the rise of ISIS, this 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 choice between keeping Turkey as a, as a second largest um, member of NATO on board and in, in, the, in the context of rising Russian rivalry with the US, where the, the value of Turkey in the wider geopolitical um, scene as far as the West is concerned, or actually the West uh, should more explicitly support the, the Kurdish movement um, uh, in Turkey and it, it, its, uh, its other branches, especially in Syria. And I think constantly they have opted for the, for the first, uh, at the moment at least. There is obviously a tactical cooperation in, in Syria and between the, the Kurds and the coalition forces, uh, especially the US, in terms of the aerial support in, for the YPG against ISIS. But even that has attracted massive uh, opposition from Turkey. Um, and... If you add to this the, the also the refugee crisis, which many people have argued was some extent was was a, was was the making of the t- Turkey insofar as they allowed not not that the original waves obviously came from the civil war in Syria, but the fact that they suddenly the suddenly the the number of people who actually managed to reach um, European borders massively increased in a particular time. Uh, period, and uh, there are lots of commentators who argue that was actually a Turkish attempt to to basically um, uh, involve uh, Europe much more in, in the Syrian conflict. It allows um, to kind of get their support for Turkish, specifically Turkish, uh, line that the Syrian uh, crisis has to be end, will end with the, with the removal of Assad. And this was uh, a major c- uh, worry for Turkey because recently, especially after the latest Vienna discussions, uh, the West has come into position that the prerequisite for them is no longer removal of Assad. So they have accepted Assad as part of the transition. And this is something which is fundamentally AKP is opposed to, not least because they have massively and strategically invested in the removal of Assad. So that there, there are um, many ways in which to see that the relation between the West and the AKP uh, and or, or Turkish state has got very complex over the last year or so, especially again since the rise of ISIS because in the ISIS, Turkey sees a, a potent force both against the Assad but also in, against checking the Kurds in place in Syria. And on the other hand, the Kurds in Syria are the, the most effective force against ISIS, which which um, kind of brings them in the larger scheme of things closer to the, the, to Western position. So the West has this dilemma of of what to do with this. Now, the, 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 at least American position has been formally that we do not recognize YPG as a terrorist, even though Turkey actually does, but uh, they, they accept the line, Turkish line against the PKK. So they make a distinction between Syrian Kurds, if you like, and and, and the Turkish Kurds. They like the um, the good Muslim, bad Muslim uh, discourse of the West um, in, in the Muslim world more generally. And I think that, that one could see that how, from PKK perspective, the escalation um, in the recent months, especially the, the urban warfare and barricading and so on and so forth, could be seen as, as, a, as a strategic way to, to push this choice to this extreme logic and, and kind of finally, if you like, you know, uh, to force the West to, to take a position. And um, 
but there is this other side which I think Aisha indirectly referred to and just that's some sort of rivalry between the PKK and the HDP because on the PKK has a kind of inter- political claim on the HDP project the, the political project is supposed to be a you know, a, a child of Ojalan's ideas and PKK claim at least that they had this role. But on the other hand, they don't want to be, PKK doesn't want to be marginalized domestically in the sense that HDP becomes the the only or the, the most important representative of the Kurdish movement in whatever relation might exist vis-a-vis the, the central state. And therefore, the, 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 the escalation of the, the conflict would bring back PKK on the map as the as the only kind of real interlocutor for the Turkish state, although at the moment AKP has completely ruled out any any further uh, peace talks with, with, uh, with the PKK. So I've got a few questions. The first is, to what extent do PKK sort of sedimentary networks feed into the HDP? Um, obviously, that's not something that people would want to talk about, but is there some veracity to that at least the support base, the social constituencies that supported one, supported the other? To what extent is that true? I, th- I think in, in, on, on a social level, I mean, in terms of the ordinary Kurds in, in, in Turkey, there is definitely an overlap. But there is also has to be said, I mean, historically, a lot of um, large, considerable sections of Kurdish uh, electorate voted actually for the AKP mm-hmm. up to Kobani. So that it, 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 you can't, we can't say really that, you know, all, all the Kurds of Turkey are either pro-PKK or pro-HTP. But there is, a, I think, a considerably... Um, you know, considerable overlap between the, 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 the two parties' support base. But I don't think there is any institutional um, or even organizational links between okay. the two. Uh, the, there might be an unspoken understanding that mm-hmm. HDP, you know, does the work of Sinn Féin and I... So this is what I'm thinking, yeah. IRA, yes. Is that a decent anal- analogy? I would say to some extent, yeah. Okay. That's yeah it's certainly tweetable, so we'll go with it. <laughs> uh, yes, I agree. I mean, there are now... Uh, three organizations uh, there are more than three but three uh, for the purpose of this discussion that probably uh, stem from similar um, demographics I mean who supports stem from similar demographics so that would be PKK which is a guerrilla slash terrorist organization and um, then EDP which is a political party and then EPG uh, which is the uh, youth um, urban uh, wing of PKK but they claim that they uh, PKK claims that they don't control it um, and you know all all three groups in a way respect the leadership of Öcalan uh, Öcalan is the person who has influence over all three but uh, HDP as a political party was, I think, trying to, at least in the summer elections, trying to transcend its um, natural um, uh, base and reach out, as I said, to the west of the country. So they made, as part of their platform, uh, um, a number of issues that uh, went beyond, you know, uh, Kurdish political rights. They, you know, talked about, um, you know, women's representation, um, uh, gay rights, all sorts of uh, other uh, issues were uh, that that are considered to be in the purview of left parties were uh, in their uh, party platform. Yeah, um, I would just wanted to make a, make a note for the record. I, I don't think I, I agree with with uh, Aisha's description of PKK as you know guerrilla slash terrorist. I don't know whether you meant that's your view or this is the view which is seen in Turkey. Um, PKK has formally um, dissociated itself from the what could be described as terrorist activities in the 80s. And since then, um, there has no um, 
activity which could be described as terrorism insofar as that all targets have been always military, even in the current situation. In the last instance where there were some civilian casualties, PKK um, acknowledged it and apologized it because the, the police station they attacked was next to a um, kind of residential area. So um, I, I think PKK is a typical national liberation guerrilla movement, uh, which ha- its record of military operation is, is mixed up to mid or late 90s. But from then on, it's, I think it, it, it's quite, quite difficult for anyone to sustain that it's, 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 um, it's a it's, it's terrorist organization. It's, uh, I think this is the Turkish state's description of it, but that's quite common. Iranian state describes the Kurdish movement as terrorist, and the Iraqi did that in the past. <coughs> in, in that regard, so uh, I think it's important to, to, to bear in mind. But in terms of the... the um, I, I wanted to use this as a platform to look at the way in which the, the Kurdish question is such a... both important, but also intractable in, if you look at it from, the, from a Turkish state perspective, because historically, the Turkish... Um, concept you know the Turkish nationalism and sorry Turkish nationalism Turkish nation has been so narrowly and ethnically defined around Turkishness that the the idea of um, of, of Kurdish kind of um, autonomy is is quite anathema to to you know generation after generation of, of state elite but also to some extent even public there is another dimension to that insofar as that Kurdish question has always been geopoliticized because the Kurds obviously don't live just in Turkey. You know, they live in Iraq, in Iran, in, in, in Syria. So, um, and given the historical legacy of the Ottoman Empire, the, the manner of its disintegration, the, the, the Republican period, the, the war of independence and so on, there is always this idea that somehow regional powers and states, I mean, even the other day Erdogan was saying that PKK is a, is a subcontractor for somebody else. I.e., you know, presumably they, they mean that Iran, because of the Syrian conflict in which Iran supports Assad, they are asking or have um, kind of uh, pushed PKK for escalation. So this notion of that Kurdish question is, is sim- simultaneously a geopolitical question, one in which there is always this notion of, of, of disintegration of the Turkish polity as a state has made... Uh, you know, extremely difficult for um, for the state, uh, you know, for, for the for the statesmen, for the policy makers, to actually come really seriously to to engage this. And unfortunately, to some extent, this view is is bought into by um, by by some forces within Turkey. Actually, would you would normally put on the progressive side of of the politics? There is this um, either indifference or, in some cases, even opposition to to um, the talk of the um, um, Kurdish autonomy. But I think the, um, the, the ferocity of the, current, um, of the current campaign in, the, in, in, in uh, Turkish Kurdistan cannot be understood by simply the, uh, you know, the, the, what's going on domestically. I think the Syrian dimension is so crucial in this because if you just look at the map and you know, the, the way that the areas in which Kurds live and given that the most powerful Kurdish organization is closely intellectually and ideologically close to the PKK, any rise of any Kurdish entity in this region would mean that, you know, for around a thousand kilometers, southern borders of Turkey would be 
uh, under control of the Kurdish organization. And given and there is another uh, kind of uh, twist to this because the, there is this Hatay province in the southwest of Turkey, which historically was part of the Syria, and there is majority of Arab speakers there, which um, in the split of the Ottoman Empire was initially part of Syria, then it got independent and then got become part of Turkey. So, and Syria, even in their textbooks today under the Assad regime, this province is considered uh, is as part of Syria. So there is a, there is a territorial claim there. And the, the areas where Kurds actually end becoming a majority is almost 30 miles from the Mediterranean. So as far as the Turkish, the Turkish state is concerned, the, the, the prevention of emergence of this entity there is, is of fundamental importance. Now, the, the, the link is that not only that, that, that geopolitically is, is a massive change for Turkish um, uh, you know, strategy in the region, but obviously that would reinforce uh, the Kurdish autonomous movement within Turkey. So at the same time that Turkey wanted to prevent that and therefore you know, the, the, internally for the domestic purposes it needed to fight, increase the fighting with the PKK in the, between the two elections, from the PKK perspective, it's also important to, you know, to, to escalate war at this particular moment because that would mean that Turkey, the Turkish p potential cost of Turkish direct action in Syria would increase. I mean, it, it would be very difficult for Turkish state to do all this in the, in the so-called southeast or Kurdistan and at the same time actually intervene in what is you know, Syrian Kurdistan. So... In, in a way, both sides have their reasons why this is so intense right now. But um, I would say that the, in, in terms of the initial impetus, it, it was more or less entirely calculated on the basis of, uh, you know, the November election and how to win back the, um, you know, the majority which they had lost in the June election. I think this leads us on quite nicely to this question of how do we through historical study, make political sense of what is going on at the moment. And what was striking to me is that within your framing of lots of these, um, I guess you'd say antagonisms within a longer durée around, you know, um, essentially the origins of the Turkish state and how it came to be yeah. and how central um, uh, the question of Kurdish autonomy is to it, was it reminds me of um, Erdogan's statements immediately following the bombing, yeah. um, where he's accusing um, the academics of being a fifth column and working on behalf of foreign powers. And, uh, I mean, I, I imagine this is well, it's definitely in translation, but um, what's being said is, uh, Turkey experienced betrayal at the hands of this mindset 100 years ago. Then there was a group of so-called intellectuals who preferred the protectorate of a great power with the belief that only foreigners could fix the problems in this country. And so thinking about this um, response that ties uh, essentially leftish, left um, intellectual academic um, speech to um, to this question of uh, cultural autonomy and says all of this is absolutely fundamentally at odds with um, national security and the nationalist project as a whole. Um, I think that makes really... It's the fundamental starting point for addressing these questions, which is, has there ever been a form of... Or has there ever been a large political movement outside of um, pro-Kurdish or, you know, um, sympathetic to um, Kurdish struggles that has so effectively challenged Turkish nationalism? Or is this the... Um, I'm wording this really badly. Um, you mean in terms of the, the the challenge that Turkish state has faced, whether has has ever had a non-Kurdish yeah. opponent? 
Um, I think that's that's Aisha's yeah. area to answer. But uh, I mean, there was a very strong leftist. I mean, I let let you to yeah. elaborate. But in the seven, in the eight, I mean, the the eighty coup, nineteen eighty coup, was actually a, a coup against largely the, the left in in, in Turkey. Uh, I mean, Turkish left. I'm um, both the leftists and the Islamists at different um, points. Um, uh, presented, I think, challenges to the Turkish state. Um, but, I mean, whether they were successful challenges, to what degree they actually bought into both both groups, bought into the various founding, foundational assumptions of Turkish nationalism could be <laughs> debated for a long time. I would suggest that um, they did. And that's why, for instance, now that the Islamists are in power, they are replicating... Um, and in some ways, in uh, in a worse way, the mistakes of the of the Kemalist regime. And um, I don't know how the leftists would fare. Um, so I, I mean, your question brings to mind the you know the founding myths of uh, the Turkish Republic. I mean, every school ch- uh, ch- child learns that you know the Ottoman Empire was, um, you know, uh, brought down by nefarious uh, (laughs) coalitions of uh, uh, European forces and, uh, you know, domestic uh, traitors. Um, And, uh, I mean, I'm exaggerating a little bit, I'm paraphrasing, but this is really really the message. Um, There's the Sev Treaty, which the Ottoman Mm. Empire signed, but was never, um, you know... uh, was never put into practice, and uh, that uh, had provisions for an independent Kurdistan and um, and, and Ar- Armenia. And uh, you know this was pushed by obviously you know various European powers. So Turks, you know, any time the, both you know the debates about recognitions recognition of the Armenian genocide, but also anything having having to do with Kurdish independence bring back this trauma of, you know, Mm. the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. And that's how uh, most political actors in Turkey read the story, whether they're Islamists or leftists or Kemalists or what have you, because they all learn the same story over and over again, you know, in their history classes. Um, um, Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Although, I mean, the irony is that the um, the, the, Kurd, the Kurds were actually fundamental to the to the um, uh, Kemal Ataturk's uh, War of Independence, i.e., the you know what is what was left of the Turkish Empire, which eventually became the Republic of Turkey, was secured with with massive help from the Kurds, who were mobilized on the on the religious line because the Kurds are Sunni like Turks, whereas the Armenians are really Christians and. Um, and at the time, Atatürk actually used very effectively this this um, uh, religious sentiment. But in order to and 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 then the Kurds were always under the idea that the, the, the old Ottoman arrangement would somehow be reproduced in a modern form. Because historically, if you look at the Ottoman uh, Empire, the Kurds, because of the their geopolitical location, they were on the frontier of the empire. They had much more autonomy than most provinces of Ottoman Empire because they could switch sides very quickly between the Iranian Empire and the Ottoman. So in order to be with either, they would always extract more uh, more concession in terms of the degree of their r- local and regional freedom. 
So this, uh, this, this notion of extra autonomy of the Kurdish provinces of Ottoman Empire was in the mind of the Kurdish tribe. I mean, this is the tri- tribal period, really, and the religious leader. They, they, they were thinking that you know, in this new republic, they would have at least a similar level of autonomy, which, which obviously was quite contrary to the, the new kind of nation-state model which, uh, which the Repub- Turkish Republican movement had in mind. So from then on, you have a series of, of reactions to this structure of a, a new structure of state in Turkey, which was very specifically defined around, uh, around Turkishness. And over time, and here I, I'm... I'm essentially talking about the evolution of the Kurdish movement in Turkey, that increasingly you have uh, a transformation of the original religious, um, um, to some extent tribal, reaction to the loss of autonomy under the new centralized state. And then the emergence of new Kurdish left who actually pursued the Kurdish freedom within the wider um, uh, struggle of, of the left in Turkey, i.e. They, they linked typically in, the, in a Marxist discourse that socialism would, would solve the national question. And it was exactly in, in late 70s where the Kurds, um, the, the Kurdish intellectual elite, some of them at least, uh, including Ocalan himself, who, who increasingly became kind of disillusioned with this project of kind of um, subordinating the Kurdish um, um, liberation movement to the, this wider socialist struggle. So they, they moved, it, you know, ideologically same, more or less same ideas, but now they fought it specifically from a Kurdish perspective. Um, and I think this will bring us maybe in a, in a, in a strange way to the, to the current period and the way in, in which HTP, as Aisha, the Demo- People's Democratic Party, were able to, to go beyond the Turkish heartland. Uh, sorry, Kurdish heartland and, and attract uh, considerable votes in the Turkish areas, because HDP um, then you know came up with this discourse of essentially a subaltern project, in which the Kurdish rights and and freedom was only one element of a wider project of uh, you know autonomy and freedom, you know marginalized groups, the, the you know the the gays, the the, the Alawis, the the non-Muslims, and so on and so forth. And I think th- th- this is actually, it's not just HDP. I mean, the ad- all the movements close to the, which we c- would be seen as part of the wider PKK-related movement, pursue a similar th- similar project. I mean, in Syria, where, where the um, YPG, PYD, YPJ, PJ, uh, various forces uh, close to PKK are, are in power, they ha- they're actually implementing a similar similar project in which... The notion of the democratic confederalism, you know, around the voluntary coming together of various ethnic and religious groups. Um, to some extent, in Iran and and, and and Iraq, we have the similar situation. So, in a way, HDP platform has the potential of uniting um, all the democratic opposition to um, to to AKP's kind of strive for for monopolizing power in every respect and i think we saw part of it in the in the june election but unfortunately the the uh, escalation of violence now pushing the hdp movement back to its kurdish if you like hardcore area and that is in a way dangerous from even from from a progressive leftist perspective because it places a lot of people who might have be opposed to Erdogan or the AKP in, in a difficult position of, 
of deciding between Turkish state or a potential split. And I think AKP is very deliberately exploiting this. So, Aaron, I see you're chomping at the bit to say well, something. Oh, it's, we've just got just under a quarter of an hour left. So I, I just thought I'd remind listeners they're listening to Novara FM here on Residence 104.4 FM, London's number one radio station. Um, I'm going to say it again. It's so important. It features James Butler riding a unicycle while eating far and juggling. Residence FM has its annual fundraiser from February 13th to February 21st. It features nine days of live events, a spectacular online auction, as well as a whole host of special broadcasts. Residence relies almost exclusively on the support of its listeners. There's a bit from the Arts Council, I think, but there's a lot that comes from listeners too. Help us make more amazing programming by heading to Residence FM to make a contribution right now. That's the Residence FM website. You may even be living listening to the show there right now so yeah we've got just over 10 minutes left it was a quick question it's a big question it's a big question because if you look at kind of we look at gramsci we talk about counter hegemony war of position i mean how the hell did this happen in turkey right because i remember being a teenager and turkey was always under i talked to i'm half Iranian. i talked to young turks i was gonna say wasn't it still the ottoman empire when you were no a that's not quite true Ash, but okay <laughs> Point taken. And I would talk to Tur- Turkish students who were coming over to England or whoever, friends of friends and whatnot, and there was still the sense that the military was the most powerful institution in the country. And that wasn't that long ago. And so the short question is, to me that seems like a classical kind of Gramscian strategy. Somehow the AKP's dominated all the major institutions of Turkish civil society. Kemalism's dead in the water. What can the HDP say the HDP. Yeah. What can the HDP learn from that? I mean, is there a similar strategy that could be pursued through bringing together various constituencies, through trying to insert themselves both in a Fabian and a Gramscian sense in certain institutions, both within and beyond certain institutions? Or is that just uh, nonsense? Because looking at it, like I said, over the last 15 years, what the AKP have done seems almost unprecedented, really, actually, in a, in a peacetime economy, in a peacetime sort of uh, yeah, society. Well, I would just I, I would I would let Aisha answer, but I would say you know if if your opponent does a war of movement, I think you can't really do war of position. I mean, at the moment, you know, the HDP could not hold even rallies. You know, hundred people were right. killed in, in the last rally, and and the HDP MPs and uh, and mayors at the moment, as we speak, are under fire. One of some several of them were actually um, injured last few days. So I think the. Um, the war of uh, position and movement um, that Gramsci was talking about, uh, I think the war of position is is something you can do in, 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 a, in, a, in a formal kind of liberal democratic Did the context. AKP do it? Um, I think they did it, yeah. Okay. But the but, HDB but can't do it? No, partly because of this um, nationalist or national question dimension mm. to it. Because as we, as we said, their, their, heart, their, their heartland is Kurdistan, right? Mm. Which... You know, estimates differ, but at most they would have between 15 to 20 percent of the demography in Turkey. So um, within Kurdistan, actually, they have done. I mean, this, the the HDP's roots in the Kurdish society is is very deep, and you can see actually they, in some ways, what they have done. The strategy could be seen as as a, as a war of posi- uh, war of um, position, but within Turkey as a whole, mm. it's it's not an easy task okay. under the current circumstances. I mean, the way the AKP succeeded is basically uh, inch by inch owning the dominant narrative as opposed to, you know, and abandoning, you know, the alternative that they claim to bring uh, to the Turkish political stage. So what we have right now is a... uh, is an unfortunate hybrid of the old uh, nationalist Kemalist state with, you know, 
Islamist populist support, kind of like the worst of uh, all worlds. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I would not want HDP to uh, employ the same strategy, even if they could. So, I mean, there's the question of can you start from, uh, a, you know, a minority position and actually succeed? Or can a, can a discourse that's so radically different from what dominates, can it actually have any chance in a, a geography like Turkey? And, you know, I'm pessimistic. I think things will get worse uh, before they get better. But at the same time, you know, sometimes I I think, you know, the Ottoman Empire was a <laughs> multicultural, relatively, like, tolerant uh, political system. I mean, it had its failings, but in these issues, it was in many ways better. And if if you could replace that with something that is quite the very opposite when it comes to uh, tolerance and... Um, assimilation strategies and, and not why, why couldn't you go the other way why couldn't you replace this kind of centralized state with you know its opposite maybe I mean it's, you've, it's been done once maybe it could be done again uh, I, I couldn't agree more I think the, the the experience of Ottoman Empire I mean given its time and, and place you know they had a formally a so-called millet system in which different religious groups had actually you know you know high degree of freedom and autonomy and it's really just the modern state, which is the, the, the worst um, um, kind of gift of the West for the rest of the world is the notion, nation state, is, is really at the heart of almost every crisis and catastrophe we have in, in, in the Middle East at the moment. As soon as this centralized um, monochromic kind of unitary states emerged, difference was obliterated. Everybody had to be in one mold. And that's, that's where actually reaction come. And reactions take different forms. They are not always in the form we like. So in some ways, if Ottoman um, structure, at least in the 19th century in the Tanzimat period, and so in terms of its the multicultural of it and, and the, the formal recognition of different ethnic and religious groups within it is extended to a recognition of different linguistic and, and, and cultural groups. Um, and this is formalized and, and um, difference is preserved and actually as, as seen as a, as a source of richness of the society. And then I think we, a lot of things will be, will, be, uh, will be solved. I mean, if you look at Iraq, the problem is, lies in there, you know, the, the, the notion of a unitary Arab nation state. In Syria, similarly. I mean, the Syrian Arab Republic, the, I mean, it's incredible that Syrian opposition did not accept the Kurdish proposition that they have to agree that in the future Syria after Assad, the, the, the word Arabic from the name of the state should be removed because Syria is not just Arab, you know. And the, the, I mean, even the opposition do not agree. And you see the, the, the entrenchment of this nation status, uh, I think, conception of society. And so, yeah, diversity, difference, you know, recognized and, and, and enshrined and the rights, corresponding rights also preserved. That's the only way. Otherwise, you would have, you know, a, a snowballing of secessionist movement uh, in the region. So I'm aware with about six minutes left. Um, now seems to be a good time to get a little bit speculative in terms of possibilities for resistance. Um, what next for Erdogan in particular? Um, is the dismantling of the HDP a goal that is at the back of his mind and framing lots of the antagonisms and um, yeah, what's going to happen in the next six months and um, and what can people abroad in the UK um, do in terms of solidarity? I'm just throwing it out there for anyone to pick up. Um, as I said, I think things unfortunately will get worse. Um, 
and either they will get worse uh, following the Russian trajectory, which is um, you know uh, slipping into outright authoritarianism where there's no um, there's no room for dissent or you know critical activity. And I think if you know um, if Hedepe is um, uh, relegate to the sidelines. Um, this is kind of the trajectory. If they outright, you know, close down uh, or dissolve the party, and uh, you know the uh, the military uh, violent option is the only uh, avenue left to the region, then there is the chance, I think, of um, you know going the Syrian route, uh, where. You know, I think a civil war is unfortunately uh, at this point a real possibility. It saddens me to say. Yes, um, I mean, in terms of support, I think um, there has been massive support from the um, Western and UK academics and academic organisations for their colleagues in in, in Turkey. Uh, but this could be broadened into uh, other areas. I mean, p- people who are interested and concerned, they could write to their MEPs. Um, there is, um, unlike, unfortunately, the, the, the House of Commons, um, within European Parliament, there are actually political factions bringing leftist radical progressive groups together, with, which historically have actually spoken uh, against the oppression of the Kurds in in different parts of Kurdistan, but also in Turkey. Um, I mean, recently there was a case brought by some HDP mayors uh, to the European Court of Human Rights regarding the curfews and the the deprivation of Kurdish citizens from their freedom of movement and so on and so forth, which was actually rejected on the basis of insufficient evidence. I don't know how much evidence they wanted to, but I I can see the the, the political context behind it. But if if there is really a grassroots pressure, um, um, then we might see some changes um, in, in, in terms of... Uh, t- t- Turkish um, government's um, actions within Turkey, but uh, at the moment, I think there are just too many codependencies between Turkey and the Western states for Western states to, to say anything. I mean, I mean, we, we could make an argument that in many ways they are complicit in what's going on, but at least if they are trying to um, formally adhere to to their to their um, principles, uh, they. they they should have been, one could expect, be much more vocal in, in terms of their opposition to what's going on. So what do you reckon, Aaron, in terms of concrete uh, political uh, demands? Well, I think that the point made about Turkey potentially facing civil war, it really can't be overstated, right? Because if you look at the causal mechanisms behind civil war, how contention works, how the state sort of engages with it or refuses to engage with it, I mean, the recipe is there. It's not impossible. Um, so I think absolutely Europeans... Politicians should really be thinking quite intelligently in long term, you know, in a long term fashion, about Erdogan, about the AKP, and about the, the future of Turkish civil society. The one thing we could do in Britain, I think, is to get the, the PKK taken off the terrorist list. Absolutely, there was a wonderful young woman. She was going to, she was going to Syrian Kurdistan to fight ISIL. This is an organisation which we've got RAF jets bombing, but she was arrested because she was going to aid and facilitate a terrorist organisation. She was arrested, I believe, in Germany. So this is clearly ridiculous. I actually think most of the British public would say that's ridiculous. I actually think most Conservative voters would say that's ridiculous. I think we should really make a concerted effort, get the PKK off the terrorist list, get, you know, 
absolute 100% British support for um, a quasi-autonomous uh, canton in northern Syria once that's settled. That's got to be an integral part of the, of the peace discussions over there. And we have to really, uh, I think we really have to muscle on the AKP. And that's not so much the Brits that can do that. I think it's the EU, and I think the EU's got to do it. Um, if they don't, I think things are going to get from bad to worse. So... In terms of uh, useful resources, we will be sharing them both on the Twitter account and when we upload the show to our SoundCloud later on. Just want to say a big thank you to Cameron and Aisha for coming on the show. Um, I have learned so much. Mm. I was just sitting here absorbing everything you were saying like a sponge. Um, so, yeah, thank you so much. You've been listening to Navara FM on Resonance 104.4 FM. We'll be back next week. Bye. <laughs>